For me personally, if I'm involved in a community, then I always get tricky questions, right? Like if I'm living in my own little world, then I think I know, understand how. But the minute I start interacting with people, there's a different viewpoint. And then they might say, well, how do those co-routines really work, right? And then I've got to stop and I have to explain it. And then I uncover that there's something that I don't know. So it's for those interesting questions. And so it it helps me learn. So if, and in the in the job that we are, in the, in the, the, the space, the tech space that we are, it's imperative to keep learning and it's easier to learn with other people around me. So I'd say as an advice to anybody, if you're struggling with learning something, find a community. If you think you know everything, find a community because you find out that. So for both ends of the spectrum and everything in between, it's a good, it's a good way to keep yourself grounded and to make sure your tech is on point. Hello, and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast bringing you the making of stories of successful software developers to help you on your upcoming journey. I'm your host, Tim Bourguignon. On this episode 207, I receive Maya Rotopas. Maya's first ever computer was... Nah, let's not spoil that one. We'll come to it in a minute. So fast forward many years. Maya now works at Ludo on Android using Kotlin. She loves building and experimenting in code and presenting about it as well, I heard. Maya, welcome to Dev Journey. Hi, Tim. Welcome, everybody. But before we come to your story, I want to thank the terrific listeners who support the show every month. You are keeping the Dev Journey lights up. If you would like to join this fine crew and help me spend more time on finding phenomenal guests than editing audio tracks, please go to our website, devjourney.info, and click on the Support Me on Patreon button. Even the smallest contributions are giant steps toward a sustainable Dev Journey journey. Thank you. And now, back to today's guest. So Maya, as you know, the show exists to help the listeners understand what your story looked like and imagine how to shape their own future. So as is usual on the show, let's go back to your beginnings. Where would you place the start of your dev journey? So I'm going to take up to the spoiler you didn't give all <laughs> the audience. <laughs> so I was uh, early in high school and my dad brought home a Sinclair ZX81. It was a small little computer that you plugged into the television. So it didn't have a screen and the keyboard was integrated with a little computer. It had 1K of RAM and I plugged it into the computer, into the TV screen and that blue light from the TV screen shone on my face and I typed my first lines of basic and it was all over. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. What was so attracting? It, there was this sense of power. There was this mystery. It was like a text mystery of these words that did things and I didn't know what they did and I could just type them in and then see what happened. And then, I don't know, make it loop endlessly or do any manner of things which were expected or unexpected, but just the power of being able to control that little machine with, with text 
was just so, I mean, I loved maths and puzzles before. So it was like a puzzle that I was trying to figure out and it was text-based. So I loved languages as well. I had equal love for language and for maths and puzzles. And then that blend of that, I mean, that first night I was sitting with it, I think my parents had gone to bed. It was like two or three in the morning and I couldn't let this thing go. I couldn't drop it. I just had to continue to figure out how it works. Indeed. So that is the start. And, and that is awesome. <laughs> the, the, the computers back then, if I remember well, came with a programming manual, didn't they? Yeah. So there was like a manual. It was like a, like a book. I might have it here somewhere, but I'll, I'll send you a photograph of it. It was just a book, which is a manual with some mm -hmm. commands, which is a little bit like a tutorial that you'd get now, but less, right? Mm -hmm. And some explanation of what it was. And that was it. That was it. You didn't have anything else. If you wanted something else, you had to take your bicycle and go to the library and hope that they had something about this computer, which they probably didn't. Mm -hmm. Then at some point they started getting these magazines, which had code written in the magazines for these computers. But of course the code had been typeset by people in magazines. And possibly the zeros became O's and the spacing was off and everything was strange. So if you wanted to play a game, you had to transcribe the text from the magazine into this machine. And it could only remember in its RAM. If you wanted to save it, you had to play the sound of that code, like out and record it on an actual tape deck. And that was my first debugging experience transcribing code from a magazine that had been mutilated by somebody who didn't understand the code. And now I had to figure out what was wrong and why it wasn't doing the things that it was supposed to do. It reminds me so many memories. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I got any of those to work. I got to debug and, and go through half the code and at some point say, screw it. <laughs> it's just too much. But I think what happened to me then was this, trying to understand how that code work was was more interesting than playing the lunar lander in the end. Because the lunar lander was just like driving this way, that way, and trying to get the thing to land. And then actually figuring out the text behind it and what made mm. it do that was way more interesting than than playing the game. Before we move on, have you seen the, the Netflix series Bendersnatch? I have. I think so. That's no, the one where you can change of... the, 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 the storyline with exactly. the choices. From, from yeah. Black Mirror, I think. I, a long time ago. I don't know the detail. All I remember was that there was like a way of changing it. So there was a way of choosing language options <laughs> like code paths and making the story change. Yeah. So, so one interesting story about that for you. At, at the beginning of the, of the show, the, 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 the main character is listening to music in the bus. And if you play this music into a ZX81, then this is actually the or if you change a bit the pitch and i don't know what exactly but this is actually the source code of the game that they are talking about put on an android phone uh, i i don't but yeah that does exactly that that has that keyboard and has a screen that looks like a tv screen and you can play mp3s into it yeah and then it gets the code because there are all these these pieces of code are living on the internet in the form of an mp3 because That's the way that you would get it into the machine. Oh, I'm definitely going to search that. <laughs> that keep me up until four in the morning when I should be sleeping. Sorry, but not sorry. <laughs> it's okay. a recurring theme, this maze of twisty passages all alike. It's definitely a recurring theme in my career, I think. 
<laughs> so we're going to talk about that further. So you knew already that it was going to become your career, didn't you? Yeah, but I didn't know what the career was, right? I mean, I knew I wanted to control these computers, but it was the 80s. And all the computer classes were all these mainframe things. And what did I want to do? I wanted to, I don't know, have a torn T-shirt and work on on Intel machines in DOS, right? That's what I wanted to do. So the next step was that the computer got upgraded. So there was a, my dad had a computer that had one of those amber screens and it was all DOS. And they, again, manual, no internet. And I knew two things. I could type in CD to change directory and I could type in DIR to see what was in the directory. So I literally took that thing and I mapped the, the, the whole directory structure by going CDDIR. And if I see a word, I would type in the word. So CDDIR and I see invaders. I type in invaders and the invader games up comes up. Okay, that was very easy play. CDDIR and then go around. Luckily, the format command has parameters, right? Otherwise, I would have formatted the disk. <laughs> it was just like wondering what the words meant and putting the words together. And then at that point, I saw that they were struggling because they needed to launch whatever programs they needed, like accounting programs or, or word processing programs. So I wrote autoexec.bat menu system, which would, with a series of nested batch files, would, would pull up a menu and then just give them a number or, or a letter that they could type and that would automate some of the commands that they needed. Um, so this was now later high school. This was now before the end of high school. I was building these menus with batch files to help the people get to the code they needed to on the machine. What was the what was the the reaction of uh, people around you seeing you explore and play with those computers like like daytime puzzles? Yeah. So I mean, I'm privileged in that sense that my parents never had a preconceived idea of what I should or shouldn't be doing. So they didn't expect me to become, I don't know, a kindergarten teacher or something. They didn't mind and they, they let me explore and provided me with the opportunities to explore. The kids at school, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't very friendly with them before because I was just reading my maths books anyway. So I met someone later who was, and we had like some once a week we could go to this like extramural computer class and there weren't any ladies or girls in the class there. There was just, I was the only girl. And I met someone later and they said, oh, she's just this, this strange girl who likes to code computers, you know, that was just like, but that was okay. Cause I mean, I was so involved with what I was doing. I didn't really bother too much about what the other opinions were around me. Okay. So at which point did you figure out, okay, th this could actually be my life L later on. This could become a job. It it's almost like it's never. It's almost like it's still this puzzle that I'm busy exploring. <laughs> when I had to go to university, I was thinking, shall I do languages? I don't want to go to the computer science department because they just use their old man friends and it's the 80s. What should I be studying? What should I do? Should I do languages? Then I thought to myself, well, the best way to, because there's no internet, right? The best way to know how these computers work was if I did engineering. So I didn't know anything about engineering, but it's like this puzzle thing. And so I went and studied engineering, not with the idea of ever becoming an engineer. I mean, I didn't want to be an engineer. I just wanted to know how all of these things fit together and how they work. 
But at the same time, I was really into language and languages. And I kept thinking I should have done art. So I'm studying engineering, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm never going to be an engineer. I don't have to worry about it. These engineers all suck. I don't want to date an engineer because I'm going to be an artist anyway. I'm going to just study something else afterwards and be an artist. So at the end of my engineering training, I enrolled to study art. I did a portfolio. I got in the school, but I didn't want to take any more money from anybody. I wanted to have enough money to be able to do the things I did. And my wise father managed to organize for me a holiday work at an engineering company. (laughs) It's like, don't worry. You don't have to be an engineer. Just work here for the holidays and get some cash. And then you'll have cash when you study to be an artist, right? Because that's what Mm -hmm. I thought I wanted to Mm -hmm. do. So then when I started working at the engineering company, um, it was C, we were coding in C, and they offered me a job then. Because, again, you know, it's C, and it's all of these little text-based things, and it was a Unix HP UX system. And, again, RS-232 terminal, like with an orange light shining on my face, with an RS-232 cable into the machine, and VI. So now, of course, VI, really strange. People hate VI, but this is, again, it's like typing, oh, this doesn't work. Okay, what do I have to do? All right, here's a big, fat book or a cupboard full of books that I can learn and then just learn more and more of these like text-based commands that I could string together. And if you can imagine, there wasn't an IDE at that point. So we had a lot of C files and H files. And the way that you managed to navigate the code was by going VI, which opens the editor, backtick, grep, the thing you're looking for, star.c, pipe through the cut command, cut out the first word before the colon, which is the file name, close back tick, and that would send all of the files which had that search term in it into your VI, and then you could go colon next, colon back to navigate through through like that. So, I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing you to still remember the whole comments. Yeah. Do you still yeah, use VI? I, mean, I think I used it the other day again for something. Why did I use it again? Oh, but the VI, I mean, the piping and the cutting and those things in the grep. I mean, grep I use every day. So, yeah. This is Unix standard. Yeah. So, a maze of twisty passages, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. So, what, what, what a, um, ID do you use nowadays? Okay. Unless. <laughs> there, there, there's something crispy coming <laughs> no unless i'm on the command line and i need to do so if i'm on the con- command line running a gradle build and i just quickly want to change something then i'll just go back into vi i mean the thing with vi is at that stage because it was my first editor ide it's like it changed my brain so i type the letters without knowing what i know what i want to do and because i touch type I type the letters and I can't, I can't tell you what letters I type. All I know is that I cut a line, dropped it, duplicated, whatever the thing is I did. I mean, that's just the way it's kind of like bled into my fingers, the, the VI commands. Uh, which is helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when you need to SSH in some way, that's always where they say you need VI, right? Well, I haven't well, SSH'd in any way for the longest time. So that's something to do tonight as well. <laughs> so your dad pushed you into this this internship to just get you get you just some money and somehow you got this this job and you forgot about art or how did that happen uh i kind of put it on hold in a way because i was still not really being an engineer right because i was because that didn't feel like engineering it was like c code uh-huh. And I was doing all of the C things. And, and in those days, it was actually quite interesting because you didn't have a debugger. 
there were these in-circuit emulators. So you had to book time and you could like debug twice a week for two hours maybe. And the rest of the time, you just ran the code in your head, right? It was all legacy codes. It wasn't anything was new. It was like a whole lot of legacy code. It was a telephone exchange. So like if you dial a zero or if you dial a one or whatever you do, how this all fits together. So yeah, so then I was working at this, but I actually worked at that company for quite a long time as the things evolved. I mean, and then the internet came and then the HPUX machines changed. We all got Intel machines and so then that changed. So then what happened after that? Then I decided I needed to work in Singapore because, so I hadn't studied, I did some art courses in between, but I, I hadn't really yet. So then I decided I need to, uh, to work in Singapore because they speak English and they've got lots of tech and then I can travel. So I put my CV on the then internet, I think it was Monsterboard, and I got a job in America. And I didn't go to Singapore <laughs> at all. I worked at Northern Telecoms in a language called in America. And that language was also, again, Mesa Twisty Passages. They had this thing where you could have global variables like a whole lot of global variables in a piece of memory. And then you could map parts of the variables or offsets into the variables and access them from somewhere else. So it's like you had a memory bank. So if you think global variables, but worse, because you can't search where anybody was accessing the global variables because they could be using it as an offset or they could be renaming it. So, I mean, so that was like, ting. I mean, yes. horrible now in retrospect, because I know now what the horrors are of a thing like that. But when I was there, it was just like, I wonder how this all fits together. And then just like with, with a kind of a curiosity, like just trying to explore that. At, at what point did you or, or do you become bored with, with such a puzzle? We say, okay, I, I mapped enough of the puzzle to not be interested anymore. I sometimes get frustrated if there's like a deadline thing that says I've got to finish a certain thing by a certain time, then that can be quite frustrating. I mean, if, if you let me just unravel all of the pieces, then it can carry on for, for the longest time. So I think when it feels like it's starting to get inefficient, right? Like if I've got to build something for a certain time, then that convoluted craziness, then that and I guess maybe I'm a bit older now as well. If it gets that convoluted and crazy, then I don't actually want to mess with it so much anymore. I'd rather than clean it up. So I guess at the beginning, when I wasn't sure of my opinions about all of these architectures and structures, it was just fascinating to wander around in these strange paths. But nowadays, I've got maybe a, I'm a bit more opinionated about how things could be <laughs> and so that it's easier for lots of people to work on. And then now it, it's actually, if it's too convoluted, it gets, it gets a bit boring, yeah? Mm -hmm. I, I totally understand that. When, when you see things once and you say, okay, maybe it's one off, and then you see a different way to do it. Oh, okay, that, that's another way. Let's explore that. And you see it failing and say, okay, maybe, maybe it was, uh, again, one off. And you see, again, a pattern that is not necessarily what you would do, but you give yeah. it a try and see. But once you have enough of those under your belt, then at some point, you say, okay, again, this one. I've seen this one countless times failing. Or I've seen this idea. It doesn't really work. <sighs> okay. So yeah, so I think also maybe I think my levels of puzzles or my shifts of puzzles have have changed. So I, in sorry. the beginning, that was the kind of thing to try and understand how, how things work. But then later, because you can imagine I started off with basic and then there was just C, which is very imperative. And then at some point, object orientation in Java came to the scene, which meant that I had no training, of course, in this, but I had to 
know, learn, think about why would you want object orientation? It's a completely alien world, like these objects. Why would you even do that? Why would you even put all these methods inside these objects? And why are you allocating so much memory, right? So, and then learning that. And then I've always had a kind of a gut feel for what the zeitgeist, what the system of the world is busy doing. So at some point in 2010, um, I started learning Scala because I had the sense that the whole internet are these floods of these information streams and that if you needed to pack all of these things inside objects, you're going to run out of memory at some point, right? <laughs> or you need to you need to do something. So you need to kind of have a mental shift to change, to think about things in more data streams, which is more like the functional way of thinking. I'm not quite convinced that you want functional programming everywhere. So that was kind of like a shift. It's like a pattern shift, which makes me then change direction and explore another thing. Another example of that would be, I was working on a at a company building embedded telecommunication systems that go on airplanes. This is now 2008, maybe earlier, maybe. And and this was like controlling a piece of software that would control an antenna and connect to the Inmarsat system. And this was all embedded for avionics systems. But at the time in South Africa, I just got the sensation that people were not building embedded things anymore. They were building them all in China. And the things that we tried to pack into an embedded piece of hardware, the phones were coming up. I had a Windows phone. I had the first the Palm Pilots and then the Nokia phones. These phones were appearing and the phones were going on the internet. And all of the things that we were trying to cram into these embedded systems were just on the phones. And there were millions of phones appearing. And someone's going to tell those little computers what to do, right? <laughs> So I changed my career and went into mobile at that point because I could see that the embedded code in South Africa, it's not the right place to do embedded code. And there was definitely a shift. So it's, yeah. So it's that kind of a curiosity that makes me like follow another little path, but then applied not so much to the low level patterns, but more to like system company-wide, worldwide patterns of where the technology is going. So that's when I went into mobile, like 2009. So I think my first Android phone was an HTC Desire. Mm -hmm. So it was that, yeah, it was like, that was so cool. And I remember walking into a job interview and the guy that was interviewing me, he asked me to code up palindromes in C and he had the same phone as me. So I did code the palindrome, but he'd already decided it was a good, like we both had the same HTC Desire Android phone. So was a good sign. It was a good connection. So, <laughs> so maybe that would be one interview question. What kind of phone does the person have? <laughs> or maybe not, maybe now it's not so, but then it was pretty relevant. So in, yeah. Indeed, indeed. I remember that was very early. The HTC Desire were kind of early. I'm, I'm trying to find out which one. There I were had. some ones before. That was actually quite an interesting stint as well. That was at working at a company that built the same thing as WhatsApp, but for Nokia phones, for the smartphones in Africa. Except okay. it wasn't only WhatsApp. It was WhatsApp and um, like eBay, you could buy stuff. You could like, there were these huge chat rooms. There were these text-based adventure games. There was dating sites. There was like, like, like everything, it was like if you couldn't access the internet on your phone because you were an African, all you had was limited bandwidth, then you could do all of that on those Java ME phones. 
So okay. I started working at that company, huge customer base in South Africa, like a precursor to WhatsApp, and started working first on Samsung Bada and then on Android. And then slowly but surely, the the Twitters and the WhatsApps and those kind of companies started appearing on the scene. And you could see how the positioning of this big company had to shift to accommodate um, for those shifts in the company. So I've skipped a few, few, few. You wanted to know if I but ever that's became. Quite, but you're doing okay. Android development. That's artsy, all right. <laughs> yeah. I, before the Android, before, before the antennas and before the internet machine on a, on a, on a plane, um, I worked at a company that measured electricity. They had huge capacitors in the boxes. And then if the power went down, they would record the signal in these boxes with these capacitors. And there for a while, and it was a smallish company and I got quite frustrated. And then I decided, no, I definitely, this is long enough. I wasn't planning on being an engineer and now it's got to stop. So I, I studied multimedia art remotely and did that for about part-time for about, yeah, for three, four years and then did a master's in digital art. So then I was working part-time for the company, the, the, the WhatsApp on, this, on the smartphones and then studying part-time doing digital art, yeah. Wow, okay. And then I thought I'm going to stop everything and now I'm going to be an artist. And then I decided, no, I can't be an artist because... I actually like building things on phones and building things for people. And the art stuff, I don't want to have to earn money on that. I just want to build mm -hmm. the art things when I want to build them um, and not have to have that as a career. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I went back to doing Android. And what, what did you take from your art studies or, or this art time into your day-to-day -day job? So... The topics of my, my digital artworks were always like software-based. So I built like a whole installation piece where it was a, it was a Xbox, you know, no, my, that connect, there was a, a device called a connect. You mm -hmm. could stand in front of it and then you could get a representation of the 3D space and have That's that inside okay. code. And then I was coding C++, open framework. So I was still coding, even though in the art world, I was still coding. So I was still leveling up my skills, even though the playing field was completely different. And the, the most striking difference between coding for an artwork and coding for code for a customer was that there's an open-endedness when I'm coding for an artwork. I go into it and I mess with the pixels or the things and I just see how it's going to, turn out so I have less of a goal there's no sprint goal or milestone it, it's I mean there are for when I've got to deliver things but the thing is very much more open-ended mm. and that's given me a kind of a skill to problem solve sometimes I'll get stuck in something or sometimes in an algorithm or in an architecture and then sometimes I just need to like I don't know leave it for a bit and then go sit outside in the sun and knit and then just let my thought travel a bit and go into that kind of art solving problem mode and then that I can hook back and then I can just see something from a different perspective so that's probably the one thing that's a good thing to learn the other thing that was really interesting there's a whole lot of things about philosophy that I was reading up about at that time and how there's certain approaches or philosophical views that actually get encoded inside the code that we write 
I'll give you an example. If you've got a computer game that has, I don't know, that's talking about climate change, right? That's talking about the weather changing and the dinosaurs dying and you've got to survive because the weather's changing. So that piece of code has got a, a philosophical opinion about, say, climate change. Now, it's clear in a game, it's easy to spot, but all of the software around us has a philosophical viewpoint trying to, that echoes the institutions that create the code, right? So mm -hmm. so it's always there. And we take it for granted and we stop seeing it. But just the way that the user interface is designed or the way, like if I take another example, if you take your phone and you click and you take a photograph of yourself and then you want to post that photograph on Twitter, you trust that no one's changing the photo before it gets put on Twitter, right? That, the operating system says, don't worry, we won't change your photograph. Look, here's a little box that gives you permission to say, yes, I want to share this photograph. So just by building the user interface the way it is, there's a certain underlying philosoph philosophy that's being presented to the user. So it's made me really much more aware. Of I'm yeah. always fascinated in these connections when, when you go in two very different directions, you always end up mixing them later on and, and bringing two worlds together that didn't belong at, at first. And, and this meetup of, of different words is always fascinating. I always love that. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, no, it is. It's definitely, it's like it's enriching. It's, and it's, and the more unexpected it is in a way, the mm -hmm. more, the more, the, the richer the crossover becomes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's, let's come back to Android. Um, because you've been doing a lot of Android uh, yeah. since. So, so how did this path from your beginning in the Android world to nowadays, June 2022, has, has worked for you? How, what, what were the major milestones? What, what were the, 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 the big currents or, or the, the, the ideas you followed, the puzzle you found? And, and how, how did this all? Yeah, so I started Android because I had an Android phone and I was coding for the Android phone. And I was lucky to be in this company that had so many users. So my first experience coding for Android was with a large user base. So in that sense, I was actually quite lucky to have that experience where it's not like just a small app that I'm building for one or two people. It, I really had that sensation where I'm writing code and we put it on the Play Store and I wrote it and it crashes and like, All of the users are complaining, we've got to stop. And we didn't have like rollout then. There wasn't like, you just shipped it. You had to then fix it and ship it again. So that sensation and that sensation of being able to like touch people's lives in a way, that big way of touching. And that I think, that accessibility made it feel as if the distance between my code and the people that are using my code was actually quite small. And that's mm -hmm. what made me stick and stay with Android. I think if I just built a small Android app had it on the Play Store, had two users, tried another Android app. Maybe I wouldn't have stayed, but I think that experience made it made it made, it, made me stay with it. So that's the start, yeah? You have a question? Just a quick question. Was it the first time that you had this, this closeness, this really, really close closeness to your users? Because, I mean, if you were building some, some embedded systems before, I, I, I figure it would take months to reach the people who would end up uh, using it. 
but with 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 an app on Android, it's like yeah. This. So it's, the, it's, the the aerospace stuff, you need to test that stuff for years before it reaches you, and you don't even know. I might not even be at the company anymore when the users start using it, right? Indeed, yeah. The projects after that were a bit closer because it was much smaller companies, and then I would get speaking to the customers. But yes, that, that's actually a good point. The Android, there was definitely a closeness there. And also okay. because then other people that I knew had the phone and, and that app was super popular. So other people were installing the phone app or they would like say, oh, you work at this company called Mixit. Show me this or look at this. So there was a lot more interaction. So I think that's that's actually, that's a very interesting point and you're completely right. So that's actually one of the things that I, that was like a hook that made me stay. Exactly. Personally, that that was for me a thrilling moment of both pure adrenaline, being being scared of breaking something, and I know I'm going to impact somebody in ten minutes, and at the same time, the thrill of it, saying, "Ooh, I can impact somebody in ten minutes." Yeah. That's so fun. <laughs> and that balance between being careful and making sure you you're doing your best not to break mm -hmm. somebody, but at some point you can't hesitate. You've just got to. Press the button and it's going to go. And if it's going to crash and burn, the best thing to do is to stop and say, okay, why did this happen? How am I going to fix it? How can I do it differently next time? Because at that point, if I have an implosion of anxiety because I made everybody's phone crash, then I'll never get out of it. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Sorry, but I cut your train of thought. That's okay. Were... Yeah. So then, then at some point when this, this system, this um, company became less popular, I started doing freelancing and that was super exciting because it was all small companies and I learned an incredible amount. All the projects were different. I was working with a lot of different people. I was working with people that had some people that were more senior, some people that were more junior. I was like mentoring people. Like sometimes people didn't want to have me on the team for a long time, but they had a junior engineer. So I had that experience of where I was I'm helping someone get going or I would come in and just give an architecture. The bad thing about freelancing was that I did some studies on my time and I found out that I need to spend 50% of my time learning new things. I mean, it's a good thing, but it's not time that I could bill. And the other thing is, is that being a freelancer, it's always that hustle looking for another job, right? So that stress is, I'm not so good at doing all of that. I'm much more introverted. So i that whole like having to pitch myself and then do the negotiation about the money and all of that. I didn't like that part, but the learning the new stuff, mentoring the people, that was, that was really good. So that kind of made another facet, which again also made me stay with Android. So from my track record, you'd think that maybe I would have chopped and changed, but this talking to the users and then being able to work with other people and mentor people. And at that stage, I was doing Ubuntu. I had all of my laptops for Ubuntu and I was running the Ubuntu South African chapters. So I was doing community stuff as well. Not so much Android community stuff, but Ubuntu community stuff. And then that kind of evolved and I started getting involved in the Google Developer Groups, Google Developer Group Cape Town. In fact, I'm still involved in the Google Developer Group, just as a platform to connect. I mean, it started, some of that Google Developer Group stuff was definitely to help with the freelance job thing, to try and see who's around and who needs contracts. But I think it's satisfied that sharing and that mentoring and helping someone else, like 
It's because it's so exciting when you look at something and you figure out and you understand that like aha moment and then you can make it happen. And if I can translate that to someone else and then see how exciting it could be, I mean, that's extremely satisfying for me. Mm -hmm. I, I would figure that that some kind of freelancing uh, contracting job would fit this mindset, really um, seeing very fast new puzzles, seeing the, 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 the geist of it, seeing and, and then saying, okay, I understood enough. Now I can go to the next yeah. puzzle and, and jump like this. That would be satisfying. Yeah. So you want to know what made me leave freelancing? Maybe I do. It's, Always for freelancing for startups, it's always like small, short-term or smallish projects. It's never a big thing. And it's never like a team figuring something out together. So I kind of missed that team interaction. I got some of that when I was mentoring people or doing GDGK and stuff. I just felt like I could amplify the things that we were building. I needed a slightly bigger company to amplify what I was doing and to get better like conversations like, yes, okay, functional this or object-oriented that or what do you think about this or should we use RxJava? Oh, no, RxJava makes cram smashes. Let's do this. You know, so that kind of interaction like is not something that I would find normally in my day-to-day -day experience with people. So that developer interaction was better in a bigger company, in a team. And also at the time... I guess around 2013, maybe earlier, the same way that there's like a tech and a zeitgeist that I'm like curious about. So I started learning Scala and then I needed to understand how this cryptocurrency thing works, right? And the only way that I could like, the best way for me to figure out was to, you know, okay, take 200 grand. I don't know how much that's worth. That's like not even, I don't know, just a few euros. If you bought cryptocurrency for under 200 rand, you could buy cryptocurrency without giving your ID book. So I thought, right, let me just buy some Bitcoin. And then at a later stage, just look at some CryptoKitties. Like, well, how does this Ethereum thing work? How do these smart contracts work? The best way for me to understand it is to just like buy a few CryptoKitties and see. So I was like messing around with crypto. And so an opportunity, I found an opportunity in a team to work in a company that um, did identity on the blockchain. So they would store the attestations of it. You'd keep your self-sovereign identity information on your device and then store just the attestations in a Merkle tree on the blockchain so that you could like give someone a part of your identity, not the whole of your identity. And so I started working at that company and got some of the team things. And then that experience then later evolved into me working at Luna now. That, that is nowadays. Um, yeah, that's now. That's now of the past two two years and three months about, yeah. Okay. And the puzzle is still challenging. Come. <laughs> so, I mean, I do work in crypto and the blockchain and crypto interests me. But if, if you're building an Android app, you don't really build on the blockchain itself. Mm-hmm. It's more like the user interface. But now I'm working in a team of about 15, 16, 17 people. And now it's like, how can we make this app be such, how can we structure these teams to be such that everybody can be happy, that, that we follow beautiful patterns that people want to code in, that we, that we do things that, that make it safe to press the button and send it out to millions of users, right? So there's like, there's like meta puzzles that have, that have started appearing. And also with the mentorship thing is I've been, I mean, I've been doing public speaking 
for the longest time. And now with the pandemic, it's been a real equalizer. Because before, if I wanted to say, I don't know, talk at DroidCon or wherever, I would have had to take leave, get a plane ticket, buy a hotel and do all of that with a South African Rand currency. And that was just always kind of prohibitive. But now with the pandemic, I've really like updated all of my public speaking and my public profiles. And to, and in that now, I about a few months ago, I got, or well, a month ago, I got Android GDE. So that's kind of given me another platform, like a parallel platform to get that feedback where I'm sharing with people and getting them excited as well. Did you, did you pursue the, the, the GDE? Did you, did you really? I did a long time and then I just, just left it for a bit. It was twofold. It was to do with that I felt I had more input in the community where I was. And that kind of input wasn't the kind of input that matched what GDE were expecting or needing at the time. Mm -hmm. But when the pandemic came, I could translate that to be something that was more understandable from a GDE perspective. And so I think I, 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 I didn't pursue it in the sense that I'm going out, I'm going to get GDE. I was doing a lot of things. And then in the pandemic time, I just collected and collated the things And then for a, for a short while, pursued it to make sure that everything was in place that they required. I was just asking because you're, you're I think, the third person telling me a similar story, saying, well, I, I, I thought about it, I, I, I tried, but no, not really. And then at some point it came, but later on, basically, not, not when I really wanted it at the, at the beginning, but after a while, when, when things settled, when, when I created some content, when, when I found the right voice, and then it came. And yeah. that's what I'm hearing, or maybe I'm interpreting. No, it is a bit like that, but it's also to do with the landscape that's changed, right? So at the moment, there were like pockets of people living and coding in certain communities. And maybe there was like devs in Cape Town or devs in Joburg or devs in Europe or devs in America. And if you wanted to get into those other communities, you had to travel there. You know, you had to go okay, there, yeah, you had to like emigrate to Berlin or whatever the thing is. But with the way that remote workers work now, we're in these pockets of time zones. Mm -hmm. And it's much easier to get people talking. I mean, we're talking, you're in Europe, I'm in mm -hmm. South Africa, and there's a much easier way to talk um, across. Yeah, I mean, there was always Twitter and all of the things, but somehow it's it's not it's much more fluid at the moment and it's much more even hmm. no, i see i see and what kind of doors does the, the gdu program open for you or did the gdu program open for you well i've got a lot of people wanting to be my friend in linkedin <laughs> that, that's but, always a nice problem to have uh, there's a certain i mean i like public speaking i like telling people stories or i like i like picking a topic knowing nothing about it and then forcing myself to learn the things and then tell people about it oh you're that so, kind of <laughs> so i like doing that and it this seems to be easier for me to be able to do that with a gd but i haven't been gde that long yet right so right. and i think the other thing is i'm kind of in a habit now of creating content reasonably regularly like once a month or whatever and this is just like it's like a almost like an accountability i don't want to say it's like an accountability but it's just like it's part of that and then there will be like a place where i can um put the content and it'll be seen mm -hmm. 
And in that way, I think it will expand my reach. So that means that there's more people that I could potentially help. The thing is, people explain things in certain ways and other people explain things in different ways. And depending on where the person that's listening to you, whether it's a talk or a video or if it's a piece of text, they might just need a small piece of a puzzle that they didn't know, that they didn't understand. And now they're reading the same content that they maybe they know, they think, oh, this is boring, this is boring, why am I reading this? Oh, but somewhere there's a niggly feeling that there's something I don't understand. And then they get to the third paragraph and there's a different way of explaining it and things just fall into place. And mm. I never know when that's going to happen. And I never know when my piece of content is going to give that to someone where it just like fills in this little piece that hasn't been colored in. Yeah. And also the tech changes all the time. So there's always going to be something that I need to learn, right? Another another maze to unravel. That is very true. I wish you I wish you a lot of puzzles yeah. <laughs> in the years to come. Um, yeah, it's time. It's time for for an advice, and I, I want to to poke at at one thing that we didn't really cover, but but still, at some point you say, well, communities entered my life, and it was for your freelancing. Why should somebody nowadays take part into a community? Somebody who hasn't maybe in the past two years. It was kind of hard to see communities still. It was in one way easier because it was always online, but in another way, there was this human connection missing. So why should somebody invest some time into stepping into communities nowadays? For me personally, if I'm involved in a community, then I always get tricky questions, right? Like if I'm living in my own little world, then I think I know, understand how things work. But the minute I start interacting with people, there's a different viewpoint. And then they might say, well, how do those coroutines really work, right? And then I've got to stop and I have to explain it. And then I uncover that there's something that I don't know. So it's for those interesting questions. And so it, it helps me learn. So if, mm-hmm. and in the, in the job that we are, in the, in the, the, the space, the tech space that we are, it, it's imperative to keep learning. And it's easier to learn with other people around me. So I'd say, as an advice to anybody, if you're struggling with learning something, find a community. If you think you know everything, find a community because you find out that you don't. <laughs> so for both ends of the spectrum and everything in between, it's a good, it's a good way to keep yourself grounded and to make sure your tick is on point. Amen to that. I'm nodding heavily and laughing my eyes out. So, <laughs> very, very well. Maya, thank you very, very much. Where would be the best place to to continue this discussion or start a different discussion with you? So I'm on Twitter and it's Maya Today on Twitter. In fact, everywhere on the net, if you just look for Maya Today, you'll find me. And then I also have a blog, mayatoday.net, which has all of the twisty puzzles as I uncover them. <laughs> okay. Anything uh, timely or not timely you want to plug in before we call it today? I think, I mean, with the, the way that this podcast is going to be later than what it is. So okay. Good. So I'll add the, the two links to the show notes and uh, so you can just scroll down there and, and click and get to, uh, to Maya directly. Maya, thank you very, very much. It's been a blast listening to your story. And this has been another episode of Delta's Journey and we'll see each other next week. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please share, rate, and review. 
it helps more listeners discover those stories. You can find the links to all the platforms the show appears on on our website, devjourney.info slash subscribe. Creating the show every week takes a lot of time, energy, and of course money. Would you please help me continue bringing out those inspiring stories every week by pledging a small monthly donation? You'll find our Patreon link at devjourney.info slash donate. And finally, don't hesitate to reach out and tell me how this week's story is shaping your future. You can find me on Twitter, I'm at timothep, T-I-M-O-T-H-E-P, or per email, info at devjourney.info. Talk to you soon.